This podcast is brought to you by Bet365, the world's favourite online betting company. By downloading the Bet365 app, you can access both pre-match and in-play markets, along with instant match updates for all. The Bet365 Bet Builder also allows you to make personalised bets via the app, so you can bet on multiple scenarios and create your own bet with unique odds right there in your hands. Bet365 is the world's favourite online sports betting company. The app can be downloaded from the Google Play and Apple App Store. Over 18s only, please gamble responsibly. Hello everybody and welcome to Pod on the Tyne, your go-to podcast for everything Newcastle United, brought to you by The Athletic. My name's Taylor Payne and I am sat here in the studio with Mr. Chris Wolf. How are you doing, Chris? Are you well? I'm very good, thank you. I think George is probably better, but, but you know... <laughs> It, yeah. It's probably not blowing a hoolie, as, you, as I think they blowing say. Hoolie, yeah. <laughs> so just for context, where is George now? George is out in Spain. I think it's about 20 degrees down on, on the south coast of Spain, so it sounds absolutely awful where he is at the moment. It's all right for some, isn't it? I know. And we're here dealing with Storm Chiara, I believe is how you pronounce it. Um, she gave you a bit of trouble with your back gate last night, is that right? She did, yes. yes uh, <laughs> That's not a euphemism, by the way. <laughs> no, it is not, but no, yes, my fiancé made me get up in the middle of the night to shut the back gate when it was, and then I got absolutely pissed on, I think would be the technical term. Oh, lovely. Was, yeah, so. so you got pissed on and your back gate is in tatters as well. Yeah. That's, well, my word, what a start. But yeah, so we're going to talk about all kinds of nonsense today. I hope you're, uh, I hope you're all well out there and... Uh, We'll catch up. First of all, we'll we'll talk a little bit about the FA Cup game against Oxford. Obviously, me and George put that podcast out last week after we had slightly lubricated ourselves in the strawberry and then recorded uh, in the clashiest room in the world. Uh, but we uh, we didn't really get the chance to talk to you. You were down there uh, at the game. What was what was it like down in at the stadium on the, on the night? Obviously, a completely different vibe. It was pretty bizarre. I mean, for eighty minutes, it felt like for once Newcastle are going to do. What would they never do here? And this is going to be a comfortable night for everyone. We can Newcastle are going to win this two 0 We're going to be able to go home nice. They're, they're the fifth round of the FA Cup for the first time under Mike Ashley, who was obviously there watching on. But no, that was not the case. And it got as soon as as soon as Matt Ritchie went to commit that foul, you could just see like could see was, it was, unraveling, was, couldn't you? Yeah, there was yeah. actually someone someone else in the press box was 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 going, "Don't foul him! Don't foul him! Don't foul him!" And then he did obviously commit the foul. And then you just thought that suddenly that the mood sort of just changed within the stadium. And there was almost once I got the first, there was inevitability about the second mm. and it was just so frustrating I mean I, I felt from a professional point of view uh, having covered having written about football for a good few years I felt relieved that I didn't have to find anything live that minute because I know that everyone else was finding live match reports everything they'd written basically yeah. binned there yeah. and then yeah. and then the context changes again but then the moment with Sam Maximan which was brilliant but just just so frustrating just, I mean just typical of the of, of Newcastle United but particularly this Newcastle side where they don't do things the easy way but somehow they did find a way and they go to West Brom next month Amazing exciting territory this it's different isn't it it's, we're not used to this kind of nonsense Yes I mean even Mike Ashley according to, to some of the club is, is very excited about the cup this year I mean, Oh is that right? Uh, yes I mean the, pre- oh, wow. the, pre- the previous 12 years we'll just, we'll just forget about those apparently Couldn't give yeah. a monkeys until now yeah. <laughs> But yeah so I think they've, they've got a real opportunity now I mean West Brom, all the soundings are that they're going to put out a semi-reserve team for that game. Obviously, promotion is going to be mm. the, the the focus for West Brom, and Newcastle have have a real chance because there are some there are some very big teams still in this. But the draw was kind in ninety eight, ninety nine. If the draw is kind again in the next round, then they're they're only two wins away from Wembley now. So 
It's amazing. I mean, I think at the start of the season, nobody really would have would have said a cup run was something that was on the agenda. And, you know, the, the, the classic uh, strategy from Mike Ashley's Newcastle United is to completely forgo all that and concentrate on not getting relegated <laughs> or pushing for the Europa League, which is one of the two choices that we have. Um, but, yeah, I think it's it's fantastic. And, I mean, I'm really looking forward to it. I'm, I'm, me and George are actually going to go down. We decided in a drunken state in the strawberry that night after the Oxford game, let's get tickets. It'll be brilliant. This what could possibly go wrong. Well, <laughs> so we've sorted that out. It'll be good fun. It will be good fun. I mean, it would be typical of Newcastle United to, to, to in some way to manage to still cock this up. I mean, they've 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 had what you would say has been one of the easiest routes to get the fifth round, and they've made that as difficult as possible by mm. having to have a replay against Rochdale, having led that first game, then getting battered in the second half, comfortably beating Rochdale at home, but then a terrible draw with Oxford at home, then managed to cut extra time and be 2-0 up at Oxford as well. So yeah. it seems at the moment like it's one of those things where they're making it difficult for themselves, but the rub of the green in this in the cup competition is sort of with them. They're, yes, it's not an easy game away to West Brom, but compared to the ties they could have had, yeah. this is there is something which just makes you think, hmm, this is, this is getting interesting now. Where, yeah. where could they go with this? I mean, if I was a betting man, which I'm not really, but if I was, I would I would definitely have some money on a draw and then another replay because that's just how it feels like it's, it's no, gone no every replays single anymore. time. Oh, no, there's no replays. No, so it's going to be on the night, but I, I would I would, oh, I would think me. a lot of extra time to me seems like. We'll still, we'll still figure out a way to draw. <laughs> <laughs> still taking penalties three weeks later. Yeah. Oh, wow, yeah, I forgot about that. Oh, of course, no replays anymore. Interesting. Yeah, we talked about the Sam Maximum moment as well in that Oxford game. That was that was pretty special. Let's be honest. That's is that the first time we've really seen him, his true self, him sort of coming out of his shell and playing the way you want him to play. Well, certainly since I went to France and, and did a big piece on him, yes, which I finally got to to use. Which I have to admit, the week and a half before the Oxford game, particularly after the Oxford home game, actually, there was a point where I thought, am I ever going to be able to use this background piece on outside maximum? Is he ever going to do anything good again in, in Newcastle shape? Because uh, when I was away, it was uh, when I did the Lauren Robert piece as well, uh, I also w- went to Monaco, Nice, and up into Paris to, to basically do this background piece on, on Alan Maximan. And it was the week he scored his first goal against Sheffield United, but I wasn't back in time. George was covering that game. And then he got injured and obviously was out for about a month, six weeks and so. It's taken him a bit of time to get back to his very best. Um, I thought that he looked very poor, to be honest, in the home game against Oxford he and did, also yeah. against yeah. Norwich. He didn't look fit in either of those matches. And even for long stages as away from home, you can see he's still not quite back to that explosive sort of level. But I thought in extra time, he was the sort of talismanic figure for Newcastle. And that is what they need to see more of him of. Because when I was doing all, all of the, speaking to all the people, his former coaches, his family about Alan Sam Maximan, the, the big thing a lot of them said is that the next level for him is he, he does this. He, exc- he goes to a club and he excites for six months. He, show, he shows those dribbling skills. He takes players on. But actual end product, there isn't enough of it. You get to the end of the season, yeah. you'd have three goals, three assists. He needs to, to produce more than that. And that's that's the big challenge from now. He clearly is so important in Newcastle. I mean, their winning record with and without him is just ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. Um, they've only won one Premier League game without him in the starting line mm-hmm. of the season. That's how important he is to this side. And it was just it was just fascinating. He is he's he's such a sort of contra- there's so many contrasts about Alan Sam Maximum. He seems to be he's, he's this flash guy. He's got his he's got his bandanas. He had a, a new one last week actually. I noticed that. Yeah. Balmain or whatever. I think Balmain. I think it's a it's a one which he's allowed to wear because it seems to be in collaboration with Puma, whereas he wasn't allowed to wear the the Gucci one. I mean, I'm not really down with the the current UK bandana scene, so I'm I'm, I'm not sure. You about- surprised me. 
no, well, you know, <laughs> they don't do bandanas in George Byasda, so I'm, I'm struggling, do you know what I mean? <laughs> but yeah, so he sort of seems this sort of flash. He likes his cars. He's obviously the, the just the way that he is, yeah. he, the way he is on social media, but actually he's very down to earth. He's very much a family man. I mean, when he was in Nice, he actually lived in a place called Canya Samir, which is about half an hour outside because mm. he wanted to spend time with his family. He didn't want to be be in that sort of bubble of, of the centre of, 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 of the sort of French Riviera. Here in Newcastle, he lives on the outskirts of the city. It's family regularly visit across from Paris. And I, I ended up uh, meeting his parents at a, at a club, one of the youth clubs that he was involved in called US uh, Risa Rangis. And uh, I, I actually arranged to meet his former coach, Didier Dimanche. But he, as I was speaking to him, I said, is there any way, do you know, do you know where his parents live? And he brought his parents down to, wow. to, to the to the training ground and basically was sat in this, this little office at this tiny little club in, in quite a deprived area yeah. of Paris. And, and she brought what was a, a sort of, essentially a photo album, which he'd given to, to Alan and Sam Maximan on his, his 18th birthday. And it's mm. sort of like photos of, of his career so far and how he's got to this stage and, Basically, she was saying that part of the reason I gave him this, and there's a message within it, is to, to, to tell him he needs to stay humble. He needs to retain those sort of roots, and he, he's still very close to his family. And it, just, it was really fascinating getting that sort of insight into someone who is, is a bit of a mercurial figure, but in the same yeah. sense, I don't think his personality actually necessarily matches what, what you see into yeah. this idea that he's an extrovert. It's interesting, isn't it? Because I think a lot of fans might have labelled him as a bit of style over substance when he first joined. And, you know, you look at him and you think classic flash footballer with the, the gold and the, the bandanas and all that sort of stuff but from what you're saying and from from what you've said he's he seems like a very humble guy and he's sort of I know he was involved in the the food bank early on when as soon as he got here he, he was dishing out signed shirts and stuff and I like his interaction with fans on Twitter as well and I enjoy reading his Twitter account it's very honest and very open and he's funny and he, you know he's using memes and gifs and stuff like that and you just don't really see it from professional footballers in the Premier League they're, they're very media trained they're very guarded they're warned about what they can and can't do and say but I do like the fact it's quite refreshing though how open he is and the kind of things that he talks about you know i, I enjoy listening and uh, listening to in, uh, interviews fantastic english as well by the way oh his english is excellent really and part, part of the reason why his english is so good i mean his, 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 his mother is from uh french guyana and mm. she's she she was brought up learning english but but then when she when she moved to to paris and when when alan was growing up he, when he was seven years old he said to his parents i will be a professional footballer one day and they sort of laughed at him and he said no i will be a professional footballer wow. and she and he, and he he really liked robert perez when he was growing up and she said and he said i, I want to play i want to play in the premier league one day and she said well if you want to play in the premier league you're gonna to have to learn english and she used to bring him on school trips with her to, to, to london she's a, she's a teacher and basically that's part of the reason why his english is so good his dream was always to play in the premier league he's here now he chose newcastle and i found that what i found refreshing speaking to people about him was when he spoke to his family that they fully supported his decision to sign for Newcastle and it was genuinely it was that a lot of people said to him don't sign for Newcastle you know that they're they're a bit of a basket case of a club which they are <laughs> I mean yeah, <laughs> yeah let's not pretend that that's not true and what Watford were interested in him there was there'd been tentative interest from Arsenal and mm. there was other offers I think that uh, Mino Raiola was quite keen to get him across to AC Milan but Newcastle had shown a lot of interest in him. They told him he was going to play if he came here. And basically, that's what he wants. He wants to play, and he wants to yeah. play regularly. And so he's chosen to come to Newcastle. As I say, it's still about adding that end product. But I think that he has been, uh, he's injected something fresh this season. He's given Newcastle a new dynamic, and he is a really important player for them. You want to hope he can stay fit and try and avoid those injuries. I mean, when you've got a player with the explosive pace like that, the hamstrings are always going to be a problem, aren't they? And the groin injuries and stuff like that. So we want to have fingers crossed that he's going to stay fit. I think... 
I think what we're waiting for him is is maybe to have that breakout season, you know, where he does contribute ten plus goals and you know eight plus assists, and then then you'll start seeing some of the big boys sniffing around and having a look and, and deciding on whether they can take a risk on him. I mean, it's a fairly I, th- I think that's a fairly low risk signing for Newcastle and St Maximum for what they paid for him and for the contract length and all that sort of stuff. You bring him in and the fans have taken to him instantly. I, I, I don't think we've got an awful lot of worries there apart from the injury record. You know, no, I, I, I'd agree with you. And I, the one thing I do feel for him and to be honest Miguel Almiron is that part of the problem is that they're having to attack so deep at the moment that there is that sort of issue in terms of end product as well that they they are so important to get Newcastle up the pitch but they're not actually given probably as much opportunity to express themselves as certain as they would want to in the final third and that's where I'm sort of feel for, for Joe Linton as well I mean yes He's he's not hit he's not hit the heights he should have done so far and yes he is really struggling as a number nine but it's not like Newcastle create an absolute shed load of opportunities from they're not high enough up the pitch to be able to do that and so these these sort of creative flair players they're so important for Newcastle mm. but in the, that same sense their own statistics are going to be mitigated by the fact that they're just having to get them up the pitch and never mind contribute the goals yeah I wish we had the solid base of a team where we could play those guys as a front three rather than as a two and then a one <laughs> fifty yards in front of them you know they are picking I mean in the in the Oxford game as well like. Um, Almiron's picking the ball at the edge of his own box and trying to run the length of the pitch with it. Now you can't just you can't just can't keep playing like that. You're going to knacker the lad out for a start, and it's just too much. It's it, 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 there's not enough cohesion between the different parts of the team at the minute. No, and there's and, and it would only work that way if there are so many bodies forward that Almiron gets them forward, then can give it to others. But there aren't enough bodies getting forward as it is. It, it, it tends to be you've got Joe Linton and then Sam Maximan and and Almiron get forward and, and support them, but but there's no there's nothing really else there, and that's what. At Oxford, I thought playing Sean Longstaff in number 10 was interesting because it had that extra body. I thought that that helped everyone. Yeah. And so over time, I think Bruce will try and develop this because he realises that this just isn't sustainable at the minute. I'm still a fan of Fabian Scher as a, as a sweeper, playing in the Beckenbauer role, <laughs> just wandering about looking gorgeous and passing yeah. the ball 60 yards, starting attacks. That's what I'd like to see. Get the rest of that midfield <laughs> higher up the pitch and just let him do his thing. Uh, he's quite happy to just do his own thing as well. I think he's quite happy to just... <laughs> Fair play. Right, we're going to move on to another topic now, another hot topic, something which has been spoken about over the last couple of weeks. We haven't really touched on it since since the big sort of news broke on it, which was the takeover. Now, Chris, what, what's your understanding of this? Where are we at the moment? Has there been any development? Is this a dead duck? What what the hell's going on? Well, I think the Kardashians are now, they own the club now, do they? <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that was their late. I mean, so essentially things haven't necessarily moved on yeah. over the last fortnight. I, I hate to, to be the person who's just going to say it as it as it is, but that's the reality of the situation. Yeah. So when the news broke um, out in, in the US, it was that there is interest from uh, Amanda Staveley and from the Saudi Arabian-led group. The Rubin brothers are also involved. And basically all we've had in the, in the last couple of weeks is it firmed up that the Rubin brothers certainly are involved. As, as George said a couple of weeks ago, yeah. Amanda Staveley does still want to be involved and buy the club. Nobody yet, I don't think, has been able to get Saudi the Saudi Arabian uh, fund to to say on the record that yeah. they uh, are also involved. But th- this is this is very real. Nobody has denied that, that that this interest is still there. My understanding is that still, though, there isn't a full agreement in place in terms of yeah. Mike Astey isn't just about to sell the club tomorrow. I thought that him appearing last Tuesday at Oxford was interesting. He'd obviously only been to to one game, I think, this season before that. Sent a bit of a message that maybe didn't. Yes, it, it was. Uh, it wasn't just him either. Justin Barnes, who sort of leads a lot of the negotiations when it comes to to the takeover, and is the one who's basically getting Newcastle primed to be in a position to be taken over, was also there. Mm. And yeah, it was it was sort of interesting in that sense. And then then these sort of messages that are coming out that Mike Ashley is up. For 
for the cup this year and all this sort of the stuff. It, 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 there's mixed messages coming from all sides. It's very unclear, I think. Does it feel like there's a bit of cloak and dagger going on here? There's there's some kind of misdirection and all sorts of stuff happening. Uh, it, it's hard to kind of to unpack it all. There's so much going on. There's so many characters involved now. It's like, yeah. it's like I played an episode of Game of Thrones now. You just don't know what you, you take your eye off it for one minute. You're like, who? Eddie Hearn's dad? What? <laughs> just, where's he come from? Who? Kardashian's mate? Who's she? Well, it, it's, it's, it's the, nonsense, isn't it? I have to be honest that the, the, when it broke and when the news broke and then in the following week and a half was, was the last week of the transfer window and Bruce revealed that they'd had this bid rejected, uh, sorry, accepted, but then the player, Bubakas, Uri Samara himself, didn't come. Yeah. Um, all of that, none of it None of it makes it, none of what's happened over the last six weeks makes it, none of it tallies with each other. So Newcastle making three loan signings with potential view to buy for two of them, that tallies with the fact the club may be taken over. Spending £35 million on a midfielder doesn't doesn't add up to that at all. No. Even even people at the club, well, even sort of agents who who dealt with the club were saying in December that that Newcastle had basically been telling them that we we're not going to spend next month; it'll be loans. Yet suddenly they go and put in a thirty-five million pound bid for a midfielder. So none of that tallies in set in itself in terms of what was meant to be the message coming out of Newcastle, regardless. But then when you factor in all of the takeover stuff. The timing of why it leaked out, nobody seems to know exactly where it's come from. Yeah. So, so that does that that doesn't make any sense. Then Mike Ashley appearing last week, that doesn't make any sense. Yet nobody on any side is denying that that, that this interest is very real. There is even claimed to be interest from other parties as well who who yeah. are supposed to go spying. So the reality is that, that that this news break in a fortnight ago has done nobody any favours. It's just taken us back into that weird place which I'm gonna to refer to as takeover land. <laughs> it's 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 like a really, really crap yeah. version of Metro Land. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Where the fun never gets started. Yeah, the fun never starts. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's. I, th- I think from a fan's point of view, it's. It becomes slightly frustrating after a while, where you hear these stories, and then suddenly things feel like they're they're moving, and then nothing happens. And now you're at the point where people have started watching aeroplanes on sc- a flight scanner and stuff like that. And I mean, that's what I do on my Monday night anyway. Is so. that all right? Yeah, yeah, of course, yeah, yeah. Um, but now it's it's hit that point now, isn't it? Where you'll there's there's two clear sort of factions of it on social media that I've been following over the last couple of weeks. There's people who go, this is bullshit. And then there's the people who are like, aeroplanes. <laughs> so <laughs> this, this, And this is where we are now. Yeah. There's people who are so desperate for it to be true that they're willing to follow aeroplanes around on their phone screen. There's also the other side of people who are so jaded and cynical about this whole thing now that it doesn't matter what you tell them, they'll still think it's absolute nonsense. So we've kind of hit that massive vacuum now, yeah. which Mark Douglas was talking about last week on Twitter. I noticed he, he said, because we've, we had that all that info got leaked out, we've now got a vacuum and there's just nothing there. So we are now filling it with the Kardashians made <laughs> and Eddie Hearn's dad. You yeah. know, it's well, it's such a clamour for things to happen. It, it yeah, just kind of go on like I, this. I totally understand both sides of that as well. I understand this desire for it's been 13 years now of Mike Ashley that fans so desperately want something different. But I also understand that this that we've had so long of over the last three or four years, takeover story after takeover story, which eventually just fizzles yeah. out and doesn't doesn't yeah. go in any. That's part of the issue with, with this having fizzled out. As George said a couple of weeks ago, these talks have been going on for months and months and months, and they could so, still go on for more exactly. Months that. And months so and months so, months, yeah. so the incremental potential progress of it. Is it bad news that the, the, the nothing's come out further in the last couple of weeks? Potentially, but it could also be good news because it could mean that they're progressing, but all be it very, very slowly. 
also because this is a consortium of, of various different people decisions don't one person can't just make those decisions yeah. so any decision that gets taken whenever a potential there's a potential change in whatever the the terms may be every single person within that needs to needs to to, to be sort of on board with, with each of that so that's that's the sort of danger of this having leaked out is that now fans understandably are clamoring for information but that's not necessarily how this works it yeah. isn't it isn't right there's no price agreed on monday tuesday prices agreed that's just not how yeah. these things work largely all of those sort of big headline figures are sort of agreed it's now about the the sort of minutiae of all these different bits and bobs which are involved and it's such a complicated deal i don't even pretend to understand exactly what goes on with it but from everyone i speak to who has far greater knowledge than me they say the last fortnight nothing having developed or seemingly having developed is not necessarily a bad thing but equally we do, we just don't know don't at this stage it's, right, yeah. it's mike it's mike ashley it's up yeah. to essentially now as george said a couple it's, weeks ago it's a fool's prediction isn't yeah. it who knows what's going to happen now who knows who knows we could be sitting here again in another six months still talking about a potential takeover by the same people or by another group of people or we could be sitting here with new owners you, you just don't know kim you kardashian could be up front <laughs> <laughs> just off Joe Linton. <laughs> oh God, I know. It's re- the thing is, I flip flop on a daily basis between this is absolute horseshit, and I'm not devoting any more of my time or effort to this because it's rubbish, and I'm not getting involved. I'm not going to see anything to ooh cans and planes, <laughs> and you know this is the. It- the, the levels of just nonsense involved are just ridiculous. That's so, just like watching Newcastle and Oxford, well, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh man, right. So hopefully, if we have any more info on the on the takeover, we'll be able to we'll be able to come back to that at some point in the future. But who knows? Watch this space. I think is what everyone's yeah. saying. Don't get your hopes up, but you know, don't worry too much. Yeah, no no news isn't necessarily bad news. This athletic podcast is brought to you in association with Stitch Fix, an online personal styling service which takes the hard work out of dressing well. To get started, go to stitchfix.co.uk forward slash athletic, fill in a style quiz, tell us about your personal style, budget, size and shape, and your clothing needs and wants. A personal stylist will then send you five items of clothing, each handpicked especially for you from our selection of 100 brands, including established names and -and up-and-coming designers. Try on everything at home and style with the other items in your wardrobe. You can then pay for what you love and send back the rest. For your stylist time, you pay a charge of just £10, which is deducted from the cost of anything you decide to buy. Remember, you try before you buy. Deliveries and returns are free both ways, and you don't need a subscription to sign up. Get started with Stitch Fix today and support our podcast by going to stitchfix.co.uk forward slash athletic right now. That's S-T-I-T-C-H-F-I-X dot co dot U-K forward slash athletic. So we're in the middle of an eight-game unbeaten run as well, Newcastle. Potentially the shittest eight-game unbeaten run in the history of football. <laughs> and I know you wrote a little, uh, you wrote a piece about this recently as well, Chris, didn't you? And, and I have to say, it's, it's ridiculous, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it was sort of a, of a little bit of fun, but also there was sort of that serious point because it was it was fascinating that I was sitting in the, I was staying in the hotel right next to, the Kassam Stadium and there was, there was a few fans who, who were just sitting chatting and it was a really sort of weird mood in the, in the aftermath of the game because mm. it was like obviously the euphoria I think you're going through quite comfortably then nearly throwing it away but then going through and so they were so almost wearied these fans and, and I just felt like, exhausted after yeah, watching oh, the game was it, was, it, it was exactly like that and, 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 and then one of them just one of them had said how you know oh, well, that, but it's at least eight games unbeaten and either one, one of them just sat and looked at them just saying yeah, but is this the shittest eighth game and beaten run ever? And it just suddenly made me think that yeah, I mean, if you if you factor in those eight games, two of them are draws against League One opposition, 
one of which Newcastle have been leading. Oh, actually, a third one, they didn't even win in normal time. They were 2-0 up and managed to cock that up and didn't win it in normal time. Yeah. One of them's a terrible 0-0 draw against Norwich. Yeah. Then you've got the Everton game where for 93 minutes they were completely outplayed. Yeah. You've got Chelsea where they barely had the ball and were 1-0. And, and then, then the, 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 the only one, game yeah. you'd say they probably played reasonably well in was for the first 25 minutes against Wolves. And then for the rest of that game, it was sort of... Yeah. The, Wolves didn't play particularly well, but it was Wolves who were dominating the ball. And so yeah. they, Newcastle and Steve Bruce deserve to be applauded for where they are. And for an eight-game unbeaten run, no matter when or wherever it is, that there's, there's part of that where you say, well done, congratulations. Yeah. But the, I think the issue is, and this is what I was listening to the True Faith podcast last week, and I thought it was interesting what Alex Hurst was saying, and a few other fans have sort of reiterated this. And it, it's not in terms of in the street, you could put up with... This, if you, if if this feels like it's developing to something, so in the past couple of years, you feel like right, well, you know, this is a relegation battle, but hopefully in the future this will get better. But there's that sort of fear that this is the best that it gets. Yeah. An eight-game unbeaten run, which could be the shittest one ever. I mean, this is the best it gets. They could have easily have been eight defeats. Yeah, exactly. Let's be honest, very easily. Yeah, it's 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 quite scary, isn't it? Because I thought. Th- I think I know exactly what Alex is saying. You you put up with the mundanity of the whole thing because you know you, the results are half decent, but the, the things that could turn on the on the on the head of a coin, you know, it's just like we could, we could have lost a lot of those games, and where would we be? Yeah. The mood would be completely different, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah and I mean, and, and every single attack and metric just about Newcastle are bottom. I mean, the the, the no, bo- I do love a metric, Chris, <laughs> as you know. <laughs> but but I, I mean I mean I think some people make too big a thing out of expected goals, but expected goals are basically bottom, they're bottom of of like chances created in terms of actual touches in the box, balls into the box, all of these sort of and so it's just you, you obviously have the least possession in the Premier League. All of these things it, it feels unsustainable, and we keep saying this: it feels unsustainable. What Newcastle are doing mm. some way at the moment, they're, they're managing to sustain that. But you just think there has to be progress at some stage. And to be fair, and him, Steve Bruce himself acknowledges this, and he's gone at the moment. It can't just be you can't you can't get these results every week. Just be you can't just be a lucky team. Yeah. And Newcastle aren't just a lucky team. They have those those sort of uh, qualities which are hard to to sort of determine ex- exactly. Character, how, yeah, character. How, how do you how do you quantify that it's very difficult to do do those sort of things resilience and and defensively although they've conceded a lot of chances they are actually fairly defensively started and they've got a very very good goalkeeper who's I kept mean, them in yeah, heck of a lot of games let's be completely honest martin yeah. dubravka has saved our bacon this season on a number of occasions and so that that's the, that's the thing where you you sort of worry for the, the next few games i think newcastle will be all right and i think they'll survive reasonably comfortably but you look at sort of the next four of the next five home games are against teams who you think they should be beaten but then you look at the norwich game you look at even even the Palace game, which Newcastle won. They didn't play particularly well, and it could have gone the other way. Southampton, they could have lost yeah. and came back and won it. So there is that. Even if though they're getting results, there isn't much confidence that that's going to translate into results mm. in the next few weeks. Now, entirely understand why. Yeah, uh, speaking about the next few weeks, the next game is uh, Arsenal on Sunday. I'm looking forward to that. Are we, Chris? Well, th- <laughs> what I will say is that they put on a very good spread at the Emirates, so I'm very oh, much looking forward to that. Right? Yes, yes. Oh, excellent. Is it like couscous and, uh, you know, oh, organic hummus? That kind oh, of thing? yeah, very, very, very nice. I mean, it's not, it's not quite on Stamford Bridge standards, which is just, that. I mean, that is that is sort of like the Champions League of it, but but Arsenal's very, very good. So. How are Newcastle looking though, when they run up this game? Is the injuries, where are we at the moment with injuries? We've still got a few people out, haven't we? Yeah, I mean, there's, it'll be interesting to hear an update from Steve Bruce on Friday, 
because at the moment there, there is a chance that they won't have any of their strikers available. I do think that Joe Linton should hopefully be okay, <clears throat> and then also Andy Carroll's close to come back, Muto's close to come back, Gale's mm. close to come back. So how, how exactly they will be involved, whether they'll be on the bench, whether they'll start, not entirely sure on. It's still looking like they're probably not going to have the likes of Mankiw and players like that. So whether he starts all three of the new players, I think will be interesting itself because mm. uh, I think that Danny Rose has got a decent chance of coming at the side. It was interesting that when he came on against Norwich, he came on as a left wing back and Matt Ritchie stayed on the pitch and went further forward. Yeah. And I think that's part of the reason why Atsu's fallen even further down the pecking order mm. is that you have that extra option there. Lazaro, does he come in as a right wing back? Yedlin is sort of struggling with his with his final ball at the minute. He's just he's, he's just he's, struggling in general. Yeah, he is, yeah. yeah. But 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 is is the Emirates away from home at the Emirates? Is that the first game to start Lazaro? Not entirely sure. Mm. Um, and then Shelby, I don't it isn't going to be ready for Not this weekend. Be, yeah. So, yeah. so you think that Bendeleb will probably play that quarterback role again. Yeah. So there are still a few injury question marks, but ha- this winter break has come at a good time for Newcastle in that sense because within the next week or two, I think the majority of the the squad should be back. Mm. Obviously, we played that front two of Sam Maximan and Almiron against uh, Oxford for the majority of that game, and to, to varying levels of effectiveness. So, I mean, it, it, it's a strange one if Joe Linton isn't fit. How the hell do they start with that game in an, in an offensive sort of term? Yeah, I mean, I just didn't think that that really... W- I don't see that working in, no. in the Premier League, the, t- the two of them together. I know a lot of people may, oh, well, well Liverpool don't have a, necessarily a quote-unquote trademark number nine and neither neither, neither the Man City or the team. world-class forward <laughs> Exactly, players, yeah. So, and it, it's... I just thought that for someone like Sam Maximan and even Almiron himself, being up top and not off someone like Joe Linton or Carroll is you end up playing a bit too much with your back to goal. That's not how they, they want to be running the players. They want yeah. to be coming from deeper. And I thought Newcastle lacked a focal point, even even though I don't think Joel necessarily is a great focal point. I don't think that's his yeah. best position. He offers more of it than without them. So Bruce has spoken already, though, before about using Sam Maximan as a false nine. I suppose that you're going to have a lack of options if Joel Linton isn't fit. So it wouldn't surprise mm. me if that was what Newcastle did and put sort of Sam Axman up front by himself almost and Elmer on further away. But I, as I say, I think there is a decent chance that Joel Linton will be involved in some way. I imagine George is sitting listening to this somewhere while he's, uh, you know, off on his little jollies being very bored by all this tactics and team yeah. talk and all that kind of stuff. He hates that kind of thing, doesn't he? He does, yeah. I was on the phone him this morning when we were chatting about something and he actually just stopped talking mid-conversation because he got so <laughs> bored of what I was talking about. He was like, you've, he's like, you've lost me. I'm going to stop talking to you now. Yeah. Oh, okay. 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 Old couple of years too. It's amazing. He's actually he's not even in Spain. He's on a barge and holiday with, with, with Neil Warnock. <laughs> There's no boats involved. They're just going around pushing people into canals. That's how it is. And Neil Warnock's talking about tactics. <laughs> yeah. Hey, well, uh, speaking of George, he he uh, wrote a fantastic piece recently about David Ginola. I, I read this yesterday on my lunch break at work, and I was enthralled by the whole thing. It was wonderful, and to see the level of. Um, uh, you know the level of feeling still towards this guy in the city. He came back to Newcastle and had a, and George kind of followed him around for a couple of days. And the piece is, is a lovely, lovely read. Did you? I presume you've had the chance to read that. Oh, I have. Yeah, it's an absolutely excellent read. I mean, it's this brings out the sort of existential question about life as well. I mean, you don't you don't necessarily oh, think you're yeah. always going to get that in terms of in a, in a piece about football. That, that that the sort of beauty of it is you get the nostalgia of the entertainers. You get them talking a bit more in depth about how exactly he felt when he had to leave. But then. This issue about which is which is obviously very close to him, and he, he feels yeah. he feels very, needs to be discussed about CPR training and things like that because he did actually 
David was done, wasn't he? He was dead for nine minutes, yeah. He was gone, yeah. Which is is just incredible. But yeah, it was a wonderful piece. But when you think about the things that have happened to other other footballers as well, people like Pavel Cernicek, who had a cardiac arrest and sadly passed away a few days later, and it mentions in the article as well, Justin Edinburgh, who was a a colleague of David Ginola's at at Spurs, to have that kind of awareness being brought out by someone like David Ginola, that's pretty pretty big thing you know and I mean I, I was re- I genuinely was enthralled reading the piece I read through it I sent George a message yesterday saying look that, that that has been really great to read and to get that message across from him I mean he still went out the back and had a cigarette but <laughs> well, actually, yeah. <laughs> he's French that's what yeah. they do they're allowed to do that but yeah. yeah it's wonderful and just seeing the the the, the, the kind of the, the feeling towards him still in, in the city and, and the, the lovely moment when he uh, he goes out on the pitch and, <laughs> in the darkness and, and screams give us the ball John Beresford you know I love stuff like that that's fantastic well i mean the, the thing about david you know, was he was absolutely fantastic footballer but also just that charisma about him he was he was so much more than ju- than just a footballer obviously the l'oreal yeah. adverts nest cafe every, everything like that and he just he remains that sort of that that figure who just it's it sort of trans he, he trans i would say he transcends football in terms of he is just he's so recognizable yeah. you speak to anyone in newcastle the, even people who aren't interested in football they know who he was they know who he is yeah, yeah. and for him to come back and as you say be given this very important message is, is just great to see Hello everyone, George here. Sorry not to be in the studio this week. I'm just on my own little mid-season winter break, albeit a working one. Um, I did want to have a little word about uh, David Ginola and the piece that I've done with him, which is on The Athletic Now. He's coming to terms with his own survival and his own existence. That might sound strange because he's physically uh, incredibly healthy and beautiful, as he always was. And mentally, he hasn't suffered any damage, any lasting damage, but he's suffering from what he kind of describes as an existential crisis. Why me? Why did he survive? Why is he still here? Who took that decision? It it hasn't made him spiritual, but it has made him consider his own existence. And I think he's also been affected by the death of Justin Edinburgh, his uh, friend and former Tottenham teammate last year, who had something very similar and, of course, didn't make it. And it's made David re-examine his life, his career. He thinks he doesn't achieve enough as a footballer. And he also dropped in unannounced to St James's Park. He found this picture of him and John Beresford, which is on the wall next to a bar in the Milburn stand. And he kind of stood in front of that for ages, remembering that incredible, blissful two years that he had at uh, Newcastle the first year was certainly blissful albeit it ended in the disappointment of not winning the title and then he stood on the pitch at a dark St James's Park completely empty he'd never seen it like that and he just soaked up the, the memory and the atmosphere and I, I sort of love that image of him doing that um, and really I think he wanted to recast his departure from Newcastle which was obviously quite sour under Kenny Dalglish and I mean it's made me think about that that incredible, wonderful team and the six months, the first six months that Genova had here. I mean, I've seen a lot of good players play for Newcastle and some great ones in Gascoigne and Beardsley and and Shearer, the the best of them all. But for that six months, Genova was something else. He was stardust, he was swagger. He had that, those kind of Hollywood looks. You could feel the temperature, the atmosphere in a room change when he walked into it because he had that star quality and he took that out onto the pitch the creativity and the talent beating fullbacks, really, really destroying them, and then crossing the ball for Ferdinand or scoring those beautiful goals. He just had that kind of gorgeous swagger, and 
it's the team that I will always think of Newcastle being and the team that Newcastle can be and should be. And that's, you know, probably ridiculous and unfair to myself because the rest of life can only be a disappointment. But he he was just something special and I'm very glad he came back up. We had 90 minutes together. He talked about it as therapy. It was very moving and it was very emotional and it made me think back to how lucky I was to see to see him play for Newcastle. I'm very glad to be here. Uh, yesterday we did a lot. We uh, visited some fantastic place. We obviously went to the hospital and uh, I've been to the Benfield School. Uh, we had some, uh, performed some CPR with the, 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 the children and it was lovely. Uh, went down in the city uh, and I could see that the city is really moving in the right direction. Uh, we went back to the stadium at St. James Park and it was very emotional. It makes me even more emotional when you bring books about uh, about my time in in, uh, in the Premier League uh, in England. And just very briefly, you, on the Friday evening, you went to St James's, as you said, yeah. it was dark and you just stood on the pitch. Can you just yeah. tell me how that felt? <laughs> yeah, it was very dark, but I still remember where I was on the pitch and uh, all the memories came back, like, you know, going down the wing and shouting at John Beresford and... Uh, seeing faces in the crowd and, you know, having so much fun on the football pitch. Uh, you know, sometimes you, you realise that playing football and being a football player is a fantastic job and sometimes it's difficult because you don't play well, you don't enjoy yourself. But my time at Newcastle was just amazing because we did play some fantastic football. Uh, the fans, they love it, but us on the football pitch, we really enjoy playing together, being together, um, winning games together, spending time in town together. And uh, all the memories went back yesterday and uh, I'm pretty sure it's going to be the same today, uh, the stadium for the game. And uh, hopefully uh, it's going to be the start of something, uh, something really nice with Newcastle and Newcastle United. It's held in such high regard by Newcastle fans as well, but then reading the article, I get a bit of personal disappointment from his point of view that he didn't do more with his career. You know, he says, I didn't get the chance to play in any major tournaments. I want to call it a Worthington Cup with Spurs. You know, he, he didn't play that many times for his country. He never got the chance to play in a World Cup or a European Championships. So I, I, f I felt there was a bit of sadness tinged in that when he was sort of talking about his own what he thought was his own failure, but we would never think of him as being that, would we? No, and I mean, it, it, it's interesting when you look back at that sort of period, and really, it was the first six months when he was absolutely exceptional <sighs> in Newcastle. And then... They're still trying to screw Neil Cox out the turf <laughs> in that corner in St James' <laughs> Park where he just turned him inside out. I'd... Twisted the lad's blood that day, it was and amazing. The, there was just th those moments you look back, and he, he was the sort of, him along with uh, Philippe Albert, it's like the epitome of, of that entertainer's team. And absolutely. He didn't really hit those heights again after the first season and then partly that was because his head had been turned by Barcelona I think he has a lot of regret about that that he had a couple yeah. of opportunities to go to Barcelona and it never actually happened he nearly East went to Barcelona before he came to Newcastle didn't he yeah he nearly, nearly before he went to Newcastle and then oh, obviously that, that situation um, and basically I think he even term, uses the term he felt like he was stabbed in the back once Keegan left and then yeah. there was a sort of fallout with Dalgleish and he ends up going on to Spurs where he did very well actually I think he won, but he won PFA player of the year he certainly won yeah, awards right, yeah, yeah. but then he basically admits himself that when he was a Aston Villa and Everton he wasn't the same player anymore and he didn't give anything yeah. like what he wanted to and he almost seems like one of those figures who 
throughout his career was sometimes made a bit of a scapegoat. He's obviously made a scapegoat when France didn't qualify for the World Cup and, yeah. and he never got back in and that sort of sense. And he just is one of those people who, who you look at. They called him the team's assassin. The team's assassin. <laughs> it was horrific to uh, say that a, to someone. You know what oh, I mean? It is absolutely horrific. But he and he's quite philosophical about it in terms of he says, look, do I think I should have achieved more? Yes, but do I have regrets? No, I don't. And I mm. suppose he still looks at it as the fantastic career he has. And for someone to have been in an area for such a short period of time as he was at Newcastle, it was only two years, yeah. and yet the affinity which is, is still held here, I think higher than any other. I mean, I think at Spurs he still liked it a lot, but not to the extent that he is at sort of here, he is yeah. still revered as that wonderful sort of figure. My mum still fancies him massively. <laughs> <laughs> I do. Yeah, well, yeah, I think it's just natural, isn't it? Yeah, so yeah, if you haven't had the chance to read that um, that article, get yourself on theathletic.com and have a look. It is a wonderful read. Um, I'm sure George will be glad to hear us saying that and bigging him up as well. But yeah, fantastic. So, Chris, I'm going to leave it there. We're going to tidy things up. And uh, thanks a lot for listening, everyone. And uh, see you next week after the Arsenal game. Cheers, Chris. Cheers. Take it easy. Bye. Bye.